If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock-Bromley. Oh, welcome back to the One Voice Podcast. So glad you're here. My goodness, we've been doing this for how many years now and every Just every podcast we do has so much meaning to me, and I'm really excited to kick off a new year with our guest, Amy Nordhues. She is the author of Preyed Upon, Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse. So this is a story of one woman's escape from the abuse of a respected, church-going psychiatrist. Um, Amy reaches out to him for help with her depression and anxiety, but instead of providing healing, He leads her down a path of deception and betrayal. So his office, which was initially feeling like the sanctuary becomes a psychological prison, one from which Amy will have to fight to free herself. Amy's honesty in this book um, really, it really touched me in a way where I, listen, I've read books since I finally found my voice at 14 years old, breaking free from the abuse that I went through from my stepfather. I have read so many books of survivors over all of these many years. And this book, I could not put it down. And I really hope that a lot of you will pick this book up because as we'll get into with Amy in a few minutes, um, the grooming process is something that a lot of survivors don't talk about. And it, I think, is one of the most important things that we talk about and discuss on the healing journey because understanding what grooming looks like is key to removing yourself from the shame um, that attaches to that abuser. And so this book just, she just dives in so deep. And so Amy, I could just go on and on and I hope um, you'll give us enough time that I can do that, but welcome to the one voice podcast. Thank you. You, I'm excited to be here. Good. Your story is just, it's one that I've heard far too many times. Um, You know, I've been an advocate for 20 years And I've held stories of survivors, you know, in all of those years, probably a hundred thousand stories. And so many, um, just when you really get to the depth of it, it's that grooming process where, you know, it's the leader that you thought you could trust this person that finally feels safe. And like you said on the back of your book, this was supposed to be a sanctuary for you. And it began to be this place of deep shame, but then also deep longing. And it was so confusing and then you feel stuck. And so Amy, I just wonder if you'd be willing to kind of talk a little bit about what first brought you um, to his office and then um, a little bit about, you know, just where it started to, you started to question things. Yeah. Um, I have had a lot of sexual abuse in my past, um, starting from childhood. And I came to a place in my life, I think it was around 2010 and my youngest sister passed away, which threw me into a really dark depression and just, you know, 
added even more on top of everything else and struggling with, you know, marital issues and trying to parent with all of this other stuff going on. And it kind of began a place where I was really kind of crying out to God. And um, in 2012, I felt like he led me to start Celebrate Recovery. And it was in a non-denominational church. And that's where I really started to heal my faith and kind of wrestle with my anger towards God for all the past abuse. And, um, and I love this new church. I loved celebrate recovery and the friends I was making there. And the pastor's wife at this church was my sponsor at CR or celebrate recovery. And we were really close. And so, um, this doctor, he was, he was a psychiatrist and he was a therapist and he was an elder at this church. Um, this doctor came highly recommended. The pastor's wife recommended him. All my friends at CR loved him. And this was going to be like my final quest to heal it, you know, to cure myself. And so it wasn't really like anything specific, but just sort of like the feeling that something is wrong with me and will always be wrong with me. And I thought, you know, I was kind of a naive new believer having just my faith just was coming alive. So I thought this has to be a God thing, right? You know, um, he has to be leading me back here because I didn't even make the appointment. A friend of mine had an appointment and offered her appointment to me and drove me there and just kind of like dropped me off on the doorstep kind of thing. So I found myself, I think it was 2013 in this man's office, um, nervous, but hopeful that this was going to be this was going to be it. God brought me here. I was going to rid myself of depression forever. And, um, and look at how the appointment came to be, you know, it just seems such like divine intervention. So that's how we got started. Um, April, 2013. And I think you asked, when did I notice like a red flag or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the, it's such a long process. And that's what I really appreciated about your book. Like you really walk us through how this seems like a God thing. Like all these things are lining up. Everyone respects him. He's so sweet and kind. Yeah. Um, but then like you look back and then that's when you notice, oh, like that was a little bit weird. No one talks about that. Yeah. yeah. So in retrospect, I know now that grooming started on day one. However, mm-hmm. in the situation, the first red flag that I noticed was April to December. So that's quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, considering he was grooming that whole period, it was, it was around Christmas time and he offered to rub my feet or my shoulders for a Christmas present. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand, well, a, I panicked, um, B I didn't, feel like no wasn't, was a choice. I feel I've talked about, I talk about how when you're sexually abused as a child, no is removed from your vocabulary. It's not an option, especially when you're referring to an authority figure or a Christian leader or a doctor. Um, their judgment, all of those things. I mean, yeah. And and their judgment is always going to trump ours, right? Who are, who am I, but just a a victim, um, a sexual abuse survivor that has depression. Like, so, um, I, chose, I think I chose, said shoulder rub. And then, um, and then when he came over and sat near me, it was, I, I was so freaked out. I said, or, or feet rub or foot or foot rub, just so he'd mm-hmm. go back to his side of the office. And so 
yes, I forced myself to slump down in my chair and put my feet out on the ottoman so he could rub my feet because I didn't feel that I had a choice. Right. And, you know, I have this internal critic that I talk about in the book that goes back and forth with me. And sometimes she's on my side and sometimes not, but you know, some of her voice, some, that voice was like, Oh, what's, I mean, come on, it's feet. Like, what's the problem? Like you're afraid of everything. Like, is this really that big of a deal? Like he's like a father figure, you know, I, he's more comfortable with you. I mean, what was he supposed to get you for Christmas? Like a gift card? Like he's just, and then it kicked in. Oh, did I tell him? I told him that I always love for my sisters or on my feet. I think I might've told him that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they, mm-hmm. they know they use things that you've suggested or said mm-hmm. and they build off that so that it sort of seems tied to you. And it's like, oh, well, he was trying to make me feel heard and validated because mm-hmm. he knows that I like foot rub. So yes. And you're the submissive one. You're the client. You're less than you're the weak one. You're the one with problems. You're the one walking in there for help. So it's like, well, you know, whatever he says, it must be right. Right. He's the authority here. So you second guess. And that's another piece in your book. I really appreciated was you shared your internal dialogue, which for a survivor of sexual abuse, that is what gets us like, and, and later we're like, but I knew it was wrong. Or I, I knew I shouldn't have done that or gone there. I should have said this. And it's because we already did it in our head, but then somehow we talked ourselves out of it because again, he's a doctor. He's a respected Christian in our community. He's my therapist. Lots of people go to him and say he's wonderful. Everyone looks up to him. He's safe. He's a grandfather. Like there's so many things. So you talk yourself out of it. But yeah, yeah. he's a goofy grandfatherly type, not like someone that would be sexually, you know, I don't know. Like that was just not even in my realm of possibility. And, you know, he always made sure to hug me after church and, he encouraged his victims to come to his church so they could do show demonstrative, you know, affection in public. And so everybody mm-hmm. says, yeah, he's, he's like that, you know, and, right. um, but in essence yeah. is a crossing of a boundary for his profession. And that's something I don't think a lot of people understand is therapists have so many rules. They have so many rules that they, all of these things that they do, this happens all the time. I can't tell you the number of survivors of therapist abuse I've heard about. And it's not always going to the extreme of you, of your situation, the sexual abuse. A lot of times it's just like, why, why are they calling me during the day? Which was your situation? Like there are office hours, like we're not friends. And I think that that's one thing that a lot of people don't know about. A lot of survivors don't know. There are so many rules and a lot of them break them. And I think it's really sad. It's really bad. And I think that's one part of the awareness of therapist abuse that needs to be, you know, more known to survivors because we're seeking help from someone and they need to adhere to these boundaries. And you didn't know, you didn't know that, you know, him calling you during, you know, your normal week to check on you was inappropriate. You wouldn't have known that. So you thought, oh, this is sweet, you know? Yeah. I mean, rubbing of the feet or what, Yeah, you know, it's like, it's not like I, it's like, I knew the rubbing of the feet or the shoulder rubs was wrong, but the thing that's so dangerous with therapy is that the therapeutic relationship is so powerful and they symbolize so much for us. And Mm -hmm. so they trigger all of our childhood emotions, whether they're father figure, mother figure. Um, Right. And it's dangerous because we as a client want nothing more than to feel special Mm -hmm 
to feel heard, to feel not just like a number and like not some, just somebody else that pays them to listen to them. Mm-hmm. We're craving that. Right. They, and they know that. And yeah. so when they give that to us and even just in a little dose, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a poison because mm-hmm. it becomes like a drug that, you know, we seek more of, but it's a childhood need. It's not them that we're really seeking, you know, and it's like an illusion Mm -hmm. that we're chasing after, but yeah, they dangle that out there. And, um, what was I going to say? Um, well, and I think too, the, the survivors need to feel special. We want to be their favorite. Of course. (laughs) And that's so so common and then preyed upon. I mean, I love the title of your book. Like those little vulnerabilities, those needs that we have, they're childlike needs and they're, and they're innate. It's what God created us, but they prey upon those little intricacies. Yeah. Yeah. They're human, basic human needs, but it's so, I felt so much shame, you know, for those needs that that's why, you know, you don't want to tell. It's like, I didn't want to admit to anybody that I loved. Eventually I became comfortable with this feet rubbing. And I loved that he felt so comfortable with me that he Mm -hmm. could be more like a father or daughter with me. And I love that it was more like talking in a comfort of a living room than a doctor's office. And I loved that I was special to him and that I was different. And I couldn't tell because I hated myself for enjoying that. I felt special and different. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and they, they bank on that perpetrators do. They know, especially as adults, mm-hmm. that if we tell that we feel like we're telling on ourselves. Right. Because or we are, are somehow involved. We wanted you know, it. We liked I felt it. like admitting everything that I hated about myself. And that was that I was ashamed of and that I wanted no one in the world to know. Mm. Now I know those are just basic human needs. That's right. But at the time I I didn't, I thought I was a freak of nature, you know? Mm, Yeah. Basic human needs and nothing to be ashamed of. That shame is so deep. Um, Yeah. When they really drive it home that like you were participating in that, you wanted that. Yeah. Yeah. And of course you, you absolutely don't, you feel panic and fear, Mm -hmm. but you, you have to you feel so attached by the time they make their first move, they make sure you're attached. They make Mm. sure that you're more isolated, that you're more dependent on them. So you feel like you can't leave. So since you feel like you can't leave, you feel like you have to adjust to this new normal. So you tell yourself, well, it's kind of a good thing. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I'm special. And so it's, it's nothing that you want, but what you want is the connection that you think you have, um, you want, you know, uh, that your therapist to care about you, you want this safe space. So, you know, you, you're willing to tolerate more and more things. Right. That makes sense. Absolutely. And, and that doesn't just happen in like a therapist office. I mean, if I think so much of all the other stories that come have come out from this, you know, from other physicians, you know, um, in the sports world, coaches, coworkers, you know, bosses so often like just such a, an abuse of power and taking advantage of those who are vulnerable or those who already have had abuse in their past. So often we think, Oh, I must have a neon sign on me that says, you know, 
I'm, I should be abused, but it's like, no, the perpetrators are looking for those who have these vulnerabilities in them, not because of something that's wrong with them, but something that a need wasn't met in them and they are trying to take advantage. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel like I had a target on my back and they also, you know, they look for people that are um, empathetic. Mm -hmm. That's a huge way they play um, or prey on women. Um, because once they can stir our emotions and make us feel sorry for them or feel, you know, attached to them or feel indebted to them, like maybe, you know, he stopped charging me. And so I started to feel like indebted. And then I started, I felt kind of guilty if to turn him in because, well, I mean, look all, look at all what he, he gave me, he gave me longer sessions. He gave me, he gave them to me for free eventually. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the um, empathy is a huge um, thing that they like to take advantage of as well as what, like you were saying, they look for mm-hmm. those of us who have been abused as children are going to be willing to accept blame, mm-hmm. um, are going to be quiet, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That's a really good point about the empathy. Um, that's, I think something, again, that's not talked about enough. And again, it's nothing wrong with us. Like that's such a special part of us that again, it's being preyed upon and exploited. And that's just, it takes a long time to heal from that stuff as I'm sure, you know, Amy, and I want to hear more about your healing as we go to, um, but kind of going back into your story, if you feel comfortable, I know that there was a point where he almost alluded to this is going to get more intimate and that scared you obviously. Um, and it was such a, like, what the fuck is he talking about? Um, but then one thing that really hit me in your book, and I would love for you to just expand on it. If you feel comfortable, you talked about it did, um, it did go there. He did push you there. And then you said like, you hated, you hated him so much, but you needed him even more. Mm, that was like, I just felt that in my guts so much, like from all the abusers in my life, there was something there. Like, it's like, why do I still need this relationship? Why do I feel, you know, but I hate him for what he's doing. Um, yeah. And I think you're referring to the assault. Yeah. First major assault. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because you said, can we just talk? Can we just leave our clothes on and talk? Yeah, that is. And he couldn't hear that. The most painful mm-hmm. part of my whole story was that very sentence. Yeah. Um, how sad is that, that I'm asking that of my therapist right. and my father figure and my Christian, you know, leader, mm-hmm. um, can, you know, can you just talk to me? Will you just, <laughs> Because that's um, why I came here, you know, Yeah, that's what this is actually for. And it, um, it's so pitiful, you know, even to me, just thinking about that. Um, he got me so isolated. The therapy was so weird. He led me down this path that I felt was the worst thing I'd ever done in my entire life, completely out of my character. I thought him luring me towards an emotional affair was horrid. And I was trying to get out then, Mm -hmm. um, much less anything beyond that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but you know, I didn't have the feelings for him. So I didn't think I was doing anything wrong, but I knew God was trying to warn me that he was doing something wrong. And that's when it wasn't even physical, just, I never even dreamed the physical was coming, but anyway, so there we were. And, um, I just felt like, like, it just makes me sad thinking about it now because I felt like, who can I go to, to admit what I've done, even though I didn't want it, Yeah, but I allowed it. Mm. And I couldn't explain that. So if I couldn't explain it, I wasn't going to be able to explain it to anybody else. And that's kind of why it leaves you. And then and you're in so much pain and mm-hmm. you're so conflicted and you're so confused and you're still attached, mm-hmm. even though you're attached to what you thought you were mm-hmm. in a relationship with, you know, you mm-hmm. you're attached to what you imagined it was, you know, this wonderful, safe space, this person that God was sending me to mm-hmm. show me, you know, what a true man, you know, acts like all those things, you still so desperately want that and feel that you can't live without it almost Mm -hmm. that you don't have anywhere else to go. And, you know, I had already turned to the one friend, the pastor's wife, who was my sponsor. Mm -hmm. I turned to her already and I knew she wasn't an option. I had told her little things along the way. And then I told her when he blatantly assaulted me months before it got worse. Um, and I, I told her what he did. It involved him shoving his hand down my pants kind of out of, to me out of nowhere. And she said, well, maybe he was just trying to teach you to stick up for yourself. So mm-hmm. when my closest and dearest friend who was like a sister or a mom to me was not going to believe me, who there was no one else. So to answer your question, Hmm. the doctor was it. He was the only other person I was close to. I, you know, I'd kind of, when they pull you into these relationships, you know, and you do become so attached to them, you start um, distancing a little bit more from friends who just wouldn't understand they just wouldn't get it. Like the therapy's weird and they just wouldn't get it. And they've never been in therapy. And so they don't really relate being attached to your therapist. So, you know, you stop kind of talking to them. So it just yeah. leaves, you know, this small circle around you and, and my close friend and the doctor were it. And mm-hmm. there was no way I could tell my husband, I wanted to tell him so desperately earlier on, but I thought if I was telling on the doctor, I was telling on myself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, why did I, and we're it, so wrapped up in the story. I thought then I'm going to lose my marriage and my family over something I didn't, I didn't do, but I didn't, no one's going to believe me because I'm an adult mm-hmm. um, and no one's going to, and even worse, I felt like to admit what he did to me, that first assault, mm-hmm. I would have to admit that I liked that he sat next to me, mm-hmm. which to me was just a horrific, disgusting flaw in me. And it's sad that I had that much, you know, self-hatred, but I, I, about those kind of traits and qualities, which I don't now, but I did then I thought it's that disgusting neediness in you Mm. that allowed this to happen. And I didn't want the world to know that about me. So it, yeah. 
So that mm-hmm. is why I said, you know, I hate you, but I need you even more. Mm-hmm. And it became after that assault over that weekend, I felt suicidal and my family, I got them out of town and my, you know, my close friend didn't believe me. And so um, the doctor, I needed him. He was comforting me and it was weird how I could comp- compartmentalize it, but he was comforting me for the pain he was causing me. Right. Right. And how confusing, how isolating that must have felt. Yeah. Do you mind sharing a little bit about the escape? Like what that looked like for you, what it felt like for you? Did you, did you second guess it, you know, just all the things and then who was there for you? Cause you couldn't do it alone. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I went back to my pastor's wife when I realized that what the doctor was hinting at and I realized, Oh my gosh, like I realized at the end that I was in dangerous waters, but you know, right before that I had thought, um, like I can, I can still fix it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and it can go back to being safe and okay, because I didn't think that we were doing anything wrong. And I thought that assault was my fault and would never happen again. Mm. So I thought we could go back to just sitting close and him being just comforting and nurturing. Um, but towards the end, when he was hinting at more intimate stuff, which I already thought we were, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get out of here. And like you said, I, I, I couldn't leave on my own. I had tried for months and I couldn't do it. So I went back to my pastor's wife and I tried to tell her, I just cried and cried and cried and told her it's really bad. And I, I can't say it. Can you please ask me? And I just can't get the words out. She wouldn't ask me a word. Um, so another week went by and I felt like I was kind of just crying out to God. And I felt like he told me, Amy, this doctor is not your problem. Like I felt like too guilty to turn him in. And he was essentially saying, he's not your problem to fix like at all, not your problem. And I, that gave me the courage to try again. I drove back to my pastor's uh, house and told her everything. And then, and and then luckily my pastor walked in the room and I told him everything. Mm. And he was the one that kind of, you know, took it seriously. And, Mm. um, and, and he asked what I needed to get out. And I said, I don't want anyone to know. Um, I just, I just need you to help me not go one time. If you could help me not go one time, I could break the tie. And my sessions were three hours long at this point. And I said, I just need someone to sit with me for that three hour session because I said, the doctor will call me. He'll cry. He'll I'll cave. Mm -hmm. He'll guilt me back in. He always does. Mm -hmm. So the next morning I had an appointment and I sat at my pastor's, um, at their kitchen table and just cried and cried. And the doctor called nine times in the first two hours. And I almost caved. Like I felt like I felt when I hear, when I heard sadness in his voice, it was just all I could do. Yeah. Um, the empathy. Right. Yes. Because I thought, well, yeah, he did some bad things, but he did a lot of good things. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and he didn't mean to do these things. And, and he, and it's probably something about me that made him slip. Mm. you know, probably something in me that was defective made this happen. So mm-hmm. at that point, I just was trying to not go. I did not have the anger towards him or anything like that. And, um, I can remember just crying and asking my pastor, I, I just remember saying he didn't love me. Did he, he didn't ever care about me. Did he? And he said, no, that wasn't love. That was manipulation. And I, it was just 
it was such a betrayal and it was so hard. Um, Did you believe that at the time? Cause I think though that's even just really hard to hear. It's, I couldn't, true, but it. yeah, I kind of knew, yeah. but I kind of was hanging on to hope that yeah. no, it's I'm like, no, I'm special. There's still no, something he's... special about me. And I yeah. thought that there was this weird connect. He, he said weird stuff regarding his mother. And I was like, no, there's just some weird thing with his mom and it's just me. And, I, and he, he doesn't hurt anyone else. It's just me. There's something weird about me. And I said, just let him go on and just, just help me get out. I just went out. And mm. my plan literally was to tell zero people, yeah. <laughs> um, which I chuckle about now because I've written a book. But <laughs> I know. I love it. <laughs> the plan was, I really <laughs> get me out. I will go on with the rest of my life and live happily ever after. Right. And that never works, you know, but so that, that was how I broke the tie. And then, you know, the, the tie was an the chains kind of were cut off. I didn't feel the intense need to go back, but the tie took a long time to break. Yeah. The attachment took a long time to break and that just took time. And you know, what really helped was, I don't know how many months later it was, but eventually another victim came forward. Yes. And I I was cheering during your book with (laughs) that one. Cause you know, there's more, but will they speak up? Oh, I know. It was so hard to be alone, mm. but I'm not going to lie. When we're talking about the attachment, it was painful to realize the whole thing was a joke and he used the same playbook with her and I was just a pawn. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of felt this inside of me of like, no, you know, it has mm-hmm. to be, you know, it was, it was a, it was a harsh reality and a bitter pill that I needed to swallow, but that was what helped me to get over that kind of attachment that this was that I meant absolutely nothing. This was like a joke. Yeah. Um, and I did see that evil there and I did kind of see that towards the end that it was a joke, but, but I couldn't believe that could be real. I couldn't believe people could really exist like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sociopaths could exist. So (laughs) her coming forward helped me to get over that whole special Mm -hmm. fantasy. Yeah. And it's just so difficult to think that, like you said, a sociopath, like someone who's legitimately a perpetrator looking for victims that they could be disguised in our church and on our little communities in such a way that they're just adored and admired and, you know, they're promoted and, you know, put on a platform. I was just talking to somebody in the, in my community yesterday, who's a therapist here mm -hmm. and knows a lot about me and then other victims that I don't even know about that he learned of through the hospital, through the psychiatric um, area of the hospital. And he was telling me how there's a pediatrician here in town that still thinks that this guy walks on water. Mm. And, you know, people need to understand Mm -hmm. that these abusers cannot operate the way they do until they have a huge following, right? Until they are a hero in some people's eyes, until they're not only not just a good guy, but like, you know, it's usually above and beyond, you know, they're an yeah. angel, they're they amazing. They do no wrong. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're just so, you know what I mean? Yeah. Close yeah. to Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And so once you have that around you, then you can proceed on to the next step. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. groom, they have to groom everybody around them before they can groom victims. That's right. And people That's just right. don't want to admit that, that they okay. don't want to believe that they could have been duped. Yeah. I didn't. It was kind of embarrassing. And they don't want to believe that 
also, we don't want to believe that that kind of evil is just walking around. No, no, especially in safe spaces. Yeah, especially at safest spaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abusers will groom the victim, but they groom the gatekeepers just as much. Yeah. Otherwise, the plan will fall apart. You know. Yeah. Let's just pause for one moment and celebrate the one year anniversary of the launch of Unleash, our virtual safe space for survivors of sexual abuse to experience belonging and free wild souls. Unleash is the eight week survivor created course and virtual support group that we've been running ongoing since January of last year. It has been such a delight to be a part of this group and to lead many of them I just have to tell you about one survivor, Haley, a survivor of child sexual abuse and human trafficking who received a full scholarship to participate in the Unleash program. And she said this, healing is like an onion. Unleash pulled back another layer where I found validation, support, and a deep level of understanding as I sat among other survivors. We were able to help one another heal and grow in a safe space where we felt seen and heard. I was able to recognize the importance of holding my own experiences and the freedom that comes with having power over them. We are so proud of Haley and all the survivors who've had the courage to step into their healing journeys, to find hope and belonging in this special community. If you are able to help us fund another Survivor Scholarship in 2022, please consider giving toward the Unleashed Survivor Scholarship Fund Or if you'd like to sign up for one of our spring courses and spring support groups, you can find out more information about Unleash by visiting IamOneVoice.org slash Unleash. Yeah, you wrote in your book, I loved how you had these rules. Like you kept highlighting certain rules in the first half of the book during the grooming process while you were still in it you know, the rules were based on, I mean, what would you say? Just the, the things that would go through your mind as a victim, you know, as the person that isn't good enough and should be trusting him. Um, yeah. Then later they changed. Go ahead. Just basically any kind of, I think we all kind of have these rules or like faulty beliefs, but we don't really recognize that they're there. Um, you kind of have to watch your behavior and then look back and be like, why would I have allowed that? And that's kind of, why I wrote the rules to sound kind of ludicrous because I want people to realize mm-hmm. that's insane that I'm thinking that, that I'm <laughs> accepting that, like, yeah. that's insane that, you know, but, um, yeah, just but if you've been through I'm, it, you'll be like, Oh, I, I believe that one point too. Yeah. yeah. And, common. um, just from abuse as a child, just from low self-esteem that just from, you know, shame and self-hatred mm-hmm. rules based on those things. Right. And then the second half of the book, after you've gotten your escape and you're, you know, you're going through the reporting process, you begin to make new rules and you could kind of just hit on the first one, which I really liked because you, you talk about how abusers really count on victims, not coming forward, that we're going to take their secret to the grave. Um, But you said, I sensed a new set of rules bubbling up new rule. Number one, you deserve to be free from the bondage of secrecy, even if the truth is challenging for others to hear and accept. And like, here you are, there's still people in your community who cannot accept the truth of what you went through. And that's, that's difficult to live with. 
Um, but like, I love how you're still standing tall, knowing you did the right thing and you're finding that your truth and you got out and there's others out there that can even say, yes, this is who he was, but some people are still so blinded. And I, for the survivors who are listening, I just want you to hear, like, even if the whole world doesn't accept it, it's probably based on their issues. You know, there's a lot of women who can't get past their own stuff to be able to accept yours. If they accept yours as truth, that means they got to now look at their own junk. And I think that holds a lot of people back from believing survivors. Sadly, even like yeah. stuff in the media that comes up, you know, I'll share some of that stuff on my social media pages about different stories, you know, the Bill Cosby story or, you know, all these actors or, or bit or the prince, like, oh my goodness, all these different people, high, high profile, even survivors themselves will victim blame on my pages wow. saying, you know what I mean? Like they've gone through it, but like, they want so badly to believe that this person couldn't do that. It's amazing well, to me, you know, because part of coming forward and admitting that you were victimized is to admit some things about yourself. You know, they're not bad things, mm. but you, you do, you are admitting that you were tricked and you were duped mm. and that, you know, and people don't want to believe that they can be because that's a terrifying world. If mm. we're walking around and we can't protect ourselves and we can't spot this stuff. Yeah. So we'd rather think, no, we chose the relationship. Mm. You know, one of the, some other victims came forward after the one that I got to speak with and you know, one of them uh, saw it in the newspaper and was saying, oh, please, you know, I was sleeping with him too, but, um, and it it was mutual. That's not abuse. It was mutual. Well, she was also getting pain medication, um, much more that she was able to find from any other doctor after she, after he, you know, pretended to retire. So nobody wants to admit that they were being used or prostituted for you know, who wants to think that? So it feels more powerful to say, no, I, no, I, I chose the relationship. I wanted the relationship. So yeah, there's, there's so many factors. And as far as onlookers, somebody really wise, you know, told me after kind of years after mine, and I was kind of hurting about that, like about why other people won't accept the truth, you know, and, and they were talking about that very thing that it's, too frightening to their little bubble, to their little reality. Yeah. You accept that, that these people really are walking around and that very intelligent people can be tricked and manipulated. It's not, but they just rather it be just certain broken types. Yeah. Yeah. Those those women with issues, they get tricked, but Mm -hmm. like, because then they're okay. Right. Then they're safe. Well, I, you know, I'm intelligent and that wouldn't happen, you know, so Mm -hmm. That's why the grooming process is such an important piece to this. Cause I think, yeah, sure. It's so easy to be able to talk about the white van that, you know, steals kids or, you know, all these conspiracy theories. But the truth is these are people that you love that are in your church. These are your coaches. These are your teachers. You know, these are your pastors. These are your managers (laughs) and grooming is very real. And before you know it, you're in this position that you never thought you would be in. Yeah. And grooming is so devastating because, you know, I'd never been groomed before I'd been, been sexually molested many times and it's really easy 
you know, like I went to the doctor in my early twenties to a gynecologist who did a very lengthy breast exam and I knew it was wrong and I was uncomfortable and I froze. Um, it was really easy for me to see that was wrong and not go back. Mm. Um, but when you're groomed, you were like seduced or, you know, lured into this magical relationship that you Mm -hmm. think it's all your needs and where has it been all your life? I mean, they, they what your voids are, you know, and they fill them and they, and you get so attached and you, and, and there's so many elements and the gaslighting and the confusion, Mm -hmm. then you can be abused over and over because Mm -hmm. then they've got you. So it's it's just like being caught in a web and you, Mm. yeah. 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 You said something in your book too, about um, like after you had escaped and you're going through like the legal process and you now have this new counselor and you said you were doing EMDR, which we have promoted a lot on this podcast. Mary and I both have found help through that. Um, I loved what you said, because I've said this in some way, so many times you said about her, I appreciated her clear boundaries. I went in, did EMDR, paid her and left. No hugs, no handshakes, no offers of tea, no wondering if she liked me or not, certainly no personal sharing. I figured after a year of working together, she might care about me, but it wasn't a prerequisite. Such a relief. God, isn't that amazing to have someone who could really do their job and set boundaries and then not leave you like wondering, like, oh, I hope it's going okay for her too. Like, no, this is how it's supposed to look. That's such a relief. I feel that. (laughs) Yeah. Like there should be zero, we should feel zero burden for them in that relationship with your friends. No, you want it to be 50, 50 with a therapist should be zero 100. Yeah. I think that's good for survivors to hear. Cause again, the empathy kicks in and, you know, we start wondering all these things or we feel needy or whatever, but like, no, this is what it's for. It's what it looks like. This is really healthy. And it is a relief when you find it. And, you know, it's natural and we all kind of like hope, well, I kind of hope they like me, you know, I kind of hope they like me they probably like me more than some of the others, you know, but (laughs) that's like totally okay to feel and think, but Mm -hmm. So many victims that I've talked to that had a different kind of therapist abuse than I did, but equally devastating, even sometimes even more um, damaging is if that therapist indulges in that, um, it's just going to be nothing but heartache for them because yeah. it's like they, you think you want it and trust me, you don't No, because that can't, that, that level of, you know, when they when the therapist swoops in and they want to be, you know, the hero and yes. you can call me oh. anytime and you can, you know, I'm here for you. And I, you're like my baby and all this kind of stuff. It feels so my good favorite. at the time. Yeah. My favorite, you're my favorite. So, you know, you get, you know, you, you can have my personal cell, you know, and you can text me, you know, oh my gosh, that feels so great. And that does not make us a bad person that that feels good. Right. But you are going, that is so abusive yeah. because it doesn't last it can't be maintained. It's, it's, it's abusive on the, you know, side of the therapist. And I, and I still know victims that are like, don't want to accept that. They're like, no, you know, she loved me. It's just now she can't see me three times a week or now she, it, it's just sad Yeah. because they yeah. create, they foster, instead of making you stronger, they foster dependency. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So basically, yeah. Yeah. It's not talked about enough. And I think it can get 
it makes healing more difficult for the client. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good point. Something to really look out for. Um, another one of your new rules I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, um, came from somebody who shared with you through the process, through the legal process. Um, you said new rule number 18, you cannot be both a victim and a willing participant in a crime committed against you. Victims by definition do not victimize themselves. Therefore, they need not explain anything about the crime committed against them, nor do they owe that to others. Oh, good. Go off, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. That was the greatest thing I've ever heard. I, Mm -hmm. it was, it was, I was fairly new in the process. Um, I had, of course, I'm, I'm an honest person. I, I told my husband everything, every detail, because I thought that's the right thing to do. And that's, and I, for me, that was probably is the, was the right thing to do. However, um, my wonderful attorney had a psychologist from Boston give me a call. And he, this psychologist is often, um, he's the expert witness that talks about tra- the yeah. transference process and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he, the first thing he said to me was, Amy, did you tell your husband? And I said, yeah, I told him everything. And he said, well, that's a shame. Because the first thing I do when I sit down with couples that are in this situation is explain to the spouse that your wife was a victim of a felony, your wife was a victim of a crime, and do crime victims owe an explanation to anybody? Like, should there be anything that we should need to say? Except absolutely, should, Gosh, it should that. be that other people are saying, what can we do for you? Right. Yeah, but the sexual abuse, especially with adults the perpetrator knows that we are not going to be sure if we were a willing participant or not. Even if we didn't want it, we can't get over the fact that we didn't leave. And even if we wanted to leave, we can't get past the fact that we didn't, or we didn't leave sooner. Mm -hmm. So that's why I love that so much. And I just want every victim everywhere to, you know, have that as a mantra because it is the truth. Yeah. And there are so many crimes out there and I don't want to rate, you know, one crime being worse than another, but there's so many crimes out there that we wouldn't think of asking the victim what they did beforehand or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and of course, like the, what were you wearing or what were you doing? But there's, <laughs> we would find that ludicrous to even want to know what their role was. So why do we do this to victims of this type of abuse? It's not fair. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that needs to be like on a billboard somewhere because so mm-hmm. many situations like the victim feels obligated to share with all their loved ones, the whole story about everything. Why, you know, to open yourself up to victim shaming questions like, or yeah, this is like your partner, but again, like you're a victim of crime. Like I know that's, it's not about caring for everybody else. You don't need all those details. It doesn't get respected as a crime. Mm. And it was the most devastating assault that has ever happened to me in my entire life of physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, sexual assault that almost destroyed me. But it looked more like a relationship than the blatant sexual assaults that I've had in my life. Yeah. And that brings me back to the whole idea of how this is such an underreported, but also hardly talked about type of abuse. The sexual abuse of adults, you know, 
and your courage to talk about that. I just know is going to bring so much courage to other people, you know, that, that me too moment. It's so hard to talk about child sexual abuse, but talking about these kinds of things, I think it's like tremendously more difficult because of all of the rules that you talked about in the past in the book. Um, so maybe walk us through a little bit, if you don't mind, just like you took this thing to trial. What did that look like for you? How did that, um, come about? And then I'd love to talk a little bit more about the healing process too. Yeah. I, um, like I said, originally didn't want anyone to know, but then, um, I ended up sharing with a close friend who was a mandated reporter. And so she, and when I say that meaning reporting him as a mental health professional, so she reported him to the medical board. And then Mm -hmm. in time I got to where I wanted to report, but you know, you have to understand, like I hadn't even told my husband yet. And I thought if I'm going to report to the medical board, I have to tell my husband, I don't want to tell my husband. So, you know, there's just a lot you have to work through as a victim. So when I was able, luckily they contacted me like the day after I felt like, like that I was ready to report myself. I went to the website and it was like, describe what happened to you in 500 words or less in this little box. And I was like, I don't. Yeah. Maybe never. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or never. And (laughs) so luckily they they contacted me and that process got started. And so, um, for me, it was a good experience. It was terrifying. And I thought the medical board investigators were there to kind of like run me off, but they were respectful and listened. And then he and a partner came to my home and interviewed me, which was terrifying because it was like one these are retired police officers and I have one on either side of me at a kitchen table, which is super weird. And I realized they're listening for inconsistencies and stuff. So it was really scary, but it was a good experience and they were kind and they believed me and they took action and they allowed him to surrender his license. Um, The doctors on the board did discuss that the worst thing they could do was to take the license, but in order to take, a doctor's license. It has to go to a full trial with the medical board with witnesses and everything. And I would have to testify. And I said, I was willing to do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't really want to do that, but I said I was willing. So they decided what would be easiest for the victim was just to allow him to surrender it. And I did learn because that's a little discouraging when they just get to surrender it. But I did learn it was like um, only the, only a handful of permanent surrenders meaning most doctors can reapply for their license after one year. This was a permanent surrender and there had only been a couple of those in 20 years. So that was really encouraging to me. Yeah. Um, big. Yeah. And, um, then in time it felt like I needed to do more. I mean, I felt glad that he wasn't able to practice in my state anymore, but it was hard watching him. He put out this sappy retirement letter to a lot of my friends were getting it and they were in tears that he was leaving. And how could he just be up and leaving like this and retiring? And I had to keep my mouth shut. Um, Mm. so eventually I decided I wanted to do more and I, I got really good counsel on filing criminal charges and was warned that that would be brutal for me and my family and that he would, the doctor would likely walk. Um, and so I pursued a civil suit, which was Mm -hmm. a malpractice Mm -hmm. lawsuit. And I, that was a good experience, although it was three years. Um, 
and, but I had a, a really great attorney who, again, you have to just as a warning, you know, for victims, you have to find an attorney who specializes in this type of abuse because the first couple of attorneys I talked to made me feel terrible mm-hmm. and wanted to know why I went back. And they were very, mm-hmm. um, it, it was just, it was painful and made me just want to give up. But then when I found somebody that understood, then he was supportive and it was a good experience. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It just reminds me again of just how, how much we need just trauma informed people at every level of professions and society to understand this kind of stuff. Cause otherwise it's just re-victimization. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be, you are at risk of re-victimization if you come forward. I mean, it isn't easy. And I did have to go through things with my spouse and then I had to go through things like with this attorney. And then I had to go through the gossip mill at church with people saying, you know, yeah, whatever lies that the doctor and his wife had started. And it was hard. Yeah. And could, do you mind sharing? I don't want to give all of your book away because I just really want people to read it because every word is just like, you're a really good writer, by the way. Like you oh, tell you. the story so well. Um, yeah, I have not been captivated by a book like that in a long, long time. I could not put it down. Um, but the the person who came to another friend at church, the other victim who came forward, what she said. Yeah, um, she didn't know me and I didn't know her. Mm-hmm. Somebody came up to her after church and said, did you hear that girl that turned in uh, Dr. So-and-so that she's done that to tons of doctors mm-hmm. and something snapped in her. And she said, I don't know who that girl is, but I'm here to tell you that he took advantage of me too. So you need to go back to your source and tell him to stop spreading lies. I love and that. I was just forever grateful yeah, um, for too. that. And I want to find her and just give her a high five. Cause that's yeah. what we need. Yeah. Yeah. The courage, you know, to stand up to that kind of bull crap and to put an end to that gossip mill. So yeah, you face a lot of repercussions and the costs of coming forward are great. Um, to find your voice. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I only bring that up because people criticize victims when they come forward and I'm, and I'm here to say we have everything to lose and very little to gain. So it's, I just, I'm just baffled every time people criticize adult women for coming forward as if mm-hmm. there's going to be something we can gain from it. Yes. Yeah. We can gain getting our voice mm-hmm. and we can gain getting some self-confidence, but we're putting ourselves in a huge amount of risk. And that's Absolutely. just what Absolutely. gets me on my soapbox. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I can get on mine for a second. So for the last year we've been um, running virtual support groups for survivors of sexual abuse is called unleash. And in these groups, one of the most popular weeks, it's an eight week e-course. And then, so it's like videos and then journal prompts. And then we meet weekly online and discuss it. And one of the, the biggest, most helpful groups that I've gotten feedback on is the group called costs. And it is, what is, what are the costs? What have been the costs of finding your voice, of telling your story, or what have been the costs of not having told your story? There's always costs, you know, and that's a really big part of the healing journey is weighing those costs and then being okay with the losses. And I think that's one part of your story. I really have uh, admired is as hard as it was for you to fight for yourself 
and to believe yourself. Um, once you finally did, once you knew the truth, you were willing to walk through whatever the costs were in order to find justice, to find freedom, to find your voice, to find other survivors, to help them along the way. Like you've really put your neck out (laughs) and that's so courageous. So courageous. Um, I want to be respectful for your time. I feel like I could ask you so many questions again. I just loved your book so much, but I think the, the last thing I would love if you have time, um, to talk about the healing, because as a Christian myself, um, I find it so incredibly evil when someone uses Jesus or the Holy spirit to hurt other people. And I just think for someone who's gone through spiritual abuse in that way, like, how do you ever go back? There's, we have a lot of survivors in unleashed groups who have gone through religious trauma and, you know, they've been abused by pastors or where their pastors didn't believe them when they came forward about something like, and it's hard for them to ever step foot in a church again. And I'm like, obviously like that would be torture. And how do you believe then the word of God, when the word of God has been used as a, as a sword, as a knife, as a, as an assault. So I can imagine it, it's been a journey for you, you know, yeah. both sides. And I, I just wonder like, what does that look like? I mean, no expectations for a pretty answer here. It's more just like, what has that looked like for you? And what would you say to so many survivors who I know are listening that have had that experience also? And it's a struggle. Yeah, for me, I... I'm fortunate in that my faith is intact. Mm. Um, however, I am struggling with the idea of church and mm. I am not sure if I want to go back to a church. Yeah. Um, I, I was really c- kind of crushed when maybe a year or two after this abuse had come out and everything that I reached out to my pastor and just kind of just said, I'm, I'm needing to talk. Can I talk to you? Mm-hmm because who else did I have to talk about this with? I, and I didn't even have a therapist. I didn't have a therapist. I didn't want to trust a therapist. And, mm-hmm. and he turned me away and told me, you know, talk to the pastor at your new church. Mm. Well, first of all, I never felt comfortable again in any other church. Sure. But there, the church that my husband and I were trying to go to, I finally got the courage to try to meet with the pastor there. And I, I was I didn't even know what my plan was. I didn't even know what I wanted to say, but it ju- I just needed, I guess I just needed that pastor to know how hard it was for me to be in church. Mm-hmm. And that if he, if he just knew that and just could just keep me in his prayers, it would help me. I don't know. And before I could even get very far into the story, he said, don't bring drama from your old church into this church. Ooh. Yeah. And I've, mm. I realized, you know, COVID hit. And gave me a really good excuse to not go to church. Mm-hmm. And then I realized in time, I think, I think it's more than COVID for me. I think I'm struggling <laughs> here. Because here was the first clue. When, when somebody said, oh, you can watch it online. As if, you know, I'd never heard of that before. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. um, no, I don't want to do that. So I was like, mm. you know, I was in denial for a while. I was like, yeah, that COVID, you know. I can't even watch stuff online now because of COVID. It's just too risky. Internet's out. Your internet's out. That's always a great. Yeah. Yeah, I can't even read my Bible. I mean, but so 
I have known for a while that I'm struggling in that area. And that was really, I've, I've kind of, God kind of showed me this was the hurt that really drove me there. The abuse itself. And then that was an additional hurt, almost more painful because, you know, I found out that this pastor, my old pastor believed that, that my abuser was one of the most evil demonic people he's ever encountered. And I thought, well, then, well, how do you think that was for me? And, and why would you turn your back on me? You know, I just wanted 10 minutes of your time. So that is kind of that end of this, of this, mm-hmm. of the question. And as far as my faith, I just, I think God, right after I got away from this abuser, mm-hmm. um, he, and I won't give it away in the book, although I've probably given it away in other interviews, um, just showed up for me in such a huge way, um, and loved on me so much and made me feel just, just gave me what I needed to get through the next, you know, stages. And, um, I never felt that he abandoned me even during the abuse. I felt like he was calling out to me and trying to rescue me, um, I think because I lived most of my life, I'd say like the first 40 years in a place of being angry with God and bitter and lonely because I had this wall of anger and I wasn't going to get close to people and people weren't going to hurt me Hmm. that I, you know, I had finally gotten on the other side of that. You know, I had, you know, when I started celebrate recovery and my faith came alive to me, I just wasn't going to go back. I just was not going to let this abuser throw me back there. And so it wasn't easy and it wasn't just like, Oh, it was easy. I just prayed. And then, you know, but it was, it was a decision Hmm. that this perpetrator wasn't going to take any more from me than he'd already taken. And that, that I was not going to go back. And I I have a rule about that. Don't, you know, don't let this abuse or this trauma throw you back into that lonely dungeon. Hmm. Um, and to, for me to be cut off from God and to be angry with God would be back to be back in that lonely yeah. prison because mm-hmm. it was a dark place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's kind of like the overall. And then just, you know, there were a lot of, it took time. It took years. Um, one of the biggest things I did to help myself heal, um, was that I wrote, it sounds kind of cheesy, but I wrote like kind of like love letters to myself from God. And I wrote it in the form of poetry because I like to write, but you know, it doesn't have to be. And I just Mm -hmm. threw at him, you know, all of my self-hatred and like, well, look what I allowed. Well, but I didn't leave. Well, you know, just kept throwing it at him, everything that I was feeling and let him speak back to me in the way that I thought that he would. And I didn't even necessarily have to believe it at first. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, I just, I just did it anyway. And I did it until I started to sense a shift. Yeah. And, um, I've also heard of people, a friend of mine told me that, and I think this is a cool healing tool too, is that you can put yourself back in the painful situation, you know, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. And then have Jesus there and imagine what he would say to the abuser and what he would say to you. Mm -hmm. So you can do it in a lot of different ways. That was one of the biggest things I did. And then I did make a choice 
and this is a huge one and I don't even like mentioning it, but I did make a choice to forgive my abuser. Mm. That's a huge, huge sore spot. And I always like to point out again, it wasn't an emotional thing. It was just like a transactional thing. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this because I want, I don't want any of my energy going to this man. Mm -hmm. And so I did anything I could. And again, I feel like God gave me, showed me a way I could do that. Showed Mm -hmm. me a way I could pray Mm -hmm. that, that it would be genuine. In -hmm. other words. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't pray. I forgive him when I didn't. So God kind of had to show me how I could kind of a workaround for that. (laughs) Yeah. I think survivors of abuse crave authenticity so much. So it's like, we can't really fake that stuff. We're not going to go into oh, yeah. something that huge if we're not really meaning it. <laughs> oh yeah. And I'm a terrible yeah. liar and, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure God would detect it. <laughs> yeah. But, I'm hearing a lot though in your healing journey, just how that empathy that was preyed upon and targeted um, in you during those earlier years are now like being redeemed for yourself. Like you're finding empathy for yourself. You're giving yourself grace in these certain ways and compassion. And you're allowing your truth to just be the truth and land where it will and not have to justify it or explain it or rationalize it. Like all those things are are being returned to you. And that's such a beautiful process. Yeah, it really is. It's such a gift. And again, that was me believing and knowing that God knew the truth Mm. and God knew, well, he knows it all. He, he knew, he knew, you know, I 100% didn't want what happened and Mm. I had to get to a place where it only mattered what he thought. And, and it of course did matter to me what my spouse thought beyond that. I have to just put it out there to the world and let it accept that some people are going to mock me and some people are going to be healed by what they hear. Mm, So yeah, once you give up on really, it's just really healing to give up on that idea of controlling what other people are going to think about you in any regards Mm -hmm. because you can't control it. So no, no, that's so good. That's so freeing. And I could tell you having worked in this field for 20 years that there's going to be a whole hell of a lot more healing for people through your story than anything else. I mean, this, this book is really powerful. It really helps a person to be in the situation. Like I was in that room with you, you know, and I understood exactly how you felt and why you were thinking these things and how it could go on at the same time. I'm so mad at him, you know, like for taking advantage and all the ways he did. So I just think it, it really will help people understand and put to rest the questions that they've had about the abuse that they've gone through as an adult and thinking all the things you did for a long time. Yeah. It's freedom. It's going to be freedom for a lot of people. I'm so glad you had the courage to write it. It's huge because, and that is such a huge compliment, what you just said, because that means that onlookers who have not experienced this and may be quick to judge. Um, And we're all quick to judge things we don't understand. So I'm not, you know, meaning to be hateful by that, but that they can read it and think, I kind of get it. Yeah. I kind of can see, you know, and that was, that was huge to me when somebody said to me, I've never been abused. And, you know, I kind of can see how that could happen because then you can soften and then maybe you can be there for somebody else where you couldn't have before because you wouldn't have related or 
you know, yeah, they're in a completely different category than me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to bridge that and say, yeah, you know, I wanted to show how it happens for the victims and for the people that don't understand. Yeah. That slow progression, I think was really important in the way that you wrote it. It really helped. I think it'll help a lot of readers to really walk through that and like you wonder how the hell do we get here? And, you know, I couldn't forgive myself till I understood it. I don't know if it's just my brain being kind of analytical, but I absolutely had to understand it before I was willing to move forward. I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't get it. I don't know why it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. Because you hold on to the worst parts and you think, but if they knew this part, like I get like, they'll, they'll say it wasn't her fault here, here and here. But if once they know this one, like that's the one that holds all the shame. And then they're going to be like, oh yeah, that one was kind of your fault, you know? But then once you finally look back and you're able to see all the grooming up until that point, cause that one to happen too. Like the grooming, understanding grooming for survivors of abuse is I think crucial to healing. If you don't understand how the grooming process happens, you get really stuck and you can't move forward. I agree. And that makes total sense because the thing, the red flags are so huge Mm -hmm. that when you look at just those, you're like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. But no, there was a hundred little things that happened before that, that Mm -hmm. got you to that place. And, And that was what I needed to see. I didn't even know I was groomed until I got out and it was like the week after, and I was starting to try to sort it out and kind of get a timeline. And then I kept going back and I was like, well, this, and then, well, then that, mm-hmm. and then, you know, then you have this whole intricate. Yeah. It's not just these little red flag, these few red flags that make you feel like you're an idiot, you know, they're. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and my, my abuser even admitted in the medical board process that he would slow down when he needed to, you know, if they, if they've done too much too fast, they back mm. off, they back off. They're experts. They go back to the grooming until they can get back to where they were. So yeah, it's and they're so patient with the process. Oh, that makes me so mad to hear that. And I know it's so true because they know what they're doing. They yeah. and they all use such similar tactics. Mm, I know. And sad. I think it's a game to them. And I think they oh, enjoy playing sure. it just like chess, except mm. for humans. It's yeah. sad, but it, it's so true. satisfying it's to them. Yeah. 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 Oh, Amy, you are remarkable. Um, knowing that a lot of our listeners are survivors and many survivors are victims as kids. And then again, as adults, what would you have to say to them today? If you had something you just thought, is there anything on your heart that you might want to just, I always like to say you're not alone. It's not your fault. And you are deeply loved Mm. because those are the three things the first two were a lifeline for me. Yeah. It was the first year almost that I needed to be told over and over and over, Amy, it's not your fault. And it's not, it's, it's happened to us too. You're not alone. It's not your fault because I thought I hear these words. I hear what you're saying, but it's, but truly it still felt like just me. Yeah. Truly felt like, I don't know. It was just hard to wrap my head around the fact that there wasn't something horribly wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just couldn't believe that I could be in a category with all normal, functioning, intelligent, wonderful women. And so that's just what I, what I like to say. And I also like to say that if you are in a situation um, that's abusive, or you think it might be abusive, that 
you need to tell someone, but you need to keep telling because oftentimes we tell and we are blown off or we're minimized or we're not heard. And then we're crushed. And then we go deeper into the abuse. And that happened to me. Mm. Um, and so I like to say, tell and keep telling. Until yeah. heard. Don't right. you agree? I do. I do. And if you're not believed and, or you're minimized or someone says like, you're just crazy and you're being gaslit, it's probably because they can't handle the truth. So I would say you need to find someone who can, who's capable. It's nothing to do with you that you weren't believed. It has everything to do with the person who couldn't handle it. So yeah, keep that, telling. That's huge. Yeah. And I relate to that too. Mm-hmm. I used to think that that was another sign there was something wrong with me. If, yeah. if what I shared was too big or too emotional or too intense or something, mm-hmm. But if people can't sit with their own pain, they can't sit with yours. So mm-hmm. you've got to find someone healthy enough. Yeah. That's a really important part. Well, Amy, we thank you so much for all of your wisdom and your time. Um, just really grateful for your life and your story and your willingness to write it all out. Um, your book is called Prayed Upon, Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse. How would you want people to find your book or contact you or not contact you? <laughs> yeah, no, my website, it's just um, www. And it's my name, Amy, A M Y, Nordhues, N O R D H U E S dot com. You can sign up about middle of the first page there. You can sign up to follow my blog. And then you can buy a, an autographed copy of my paperback on my website. And I, um, like to give people some of my photography with scripture when they buy it from me, just because I can. Yeah. Um, Or they can buy it from um, Amazon and it's in uh, paperback and ebook and Kindle unlimited. Okay. Well, really encourage our listeners to purchase from you and support what you're doing and support your healing journey. We're so grateful for you, Amy. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.